0: Welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Meet him, greet him, treat him, and street them. Today's date is August 18th, 2020, and I'm your skeptical host, Ken Milne. The title of today's podcast is Learning to Test for COVID-19. And our guest skeptic is Dr. Corey Heinz. He is an emergency physician in Roanoke, Virginia, and he's also the CME editor for Academic Emergency Medicine. Welcome back to the SGM, Corey.
1: Thanks, Ken. It's always good to be here.
0: Well, this is going to be the last regular episode of season number eight. And we have some (gasps) exciting things coming out in season number nine.
1: Season nine? You've been doing this for nine years? Holy cow. Are you able to give us a little preview about what's coming up?
0: Okay, here's the preview. It's going to be bigger, better, faster, smarter, cutting that KT window down from over 10 years to less than one year with the power of social media. And a few exciting additions, but you're going to have to stay tuned and check out season number nine to find out what those are. All right, Corey, let's get this last regular episode of season number eight started. What's the case?
1: All right, Ken, you are working in the emergency department during the COVID-19 outbreak, and you see a patient with oxygen saturations of 75% on room air, a fever, and a cough. Upon review of systems, you learned that she lost her sense of taste about two days ago. Your hospital performs COVID PCR nasal swabs on suspected patients, so you order this test and await the results.
0: Well, in early 2020, a pandemic broke out with its origins thought to be in the Wuhan region of China. A novel coronavirus, SARS-CoV-2, commonly called COVID-19, rapidly spread around the world, overwhelming hospitals and medical systems causing significant morbidity and mortality.
1: The speed with which the outbreak occurred made identification of cases difficult, as the disease exhibited a variety of symptoms, and testing lagged its spread. The U.S. Federal Drug Administration allowed for emergency development and use of polymerase chain reaction assays, and dozens of companies released assay kits.
0: Now, I've consciously tried to avoid contributing to the COVID-19 information overload on the SGEM. However, I did do a Cape Town Hall on therapeutics with my good friend, Dr. Sean Moore, up in Kenora, Ontario, and a friendly debate on mandatory universal masking in public with Dr. Joe Vipond out of Calgary.
1: This review discusses the diagnostic accuracy of reverse transcriptase PCR, RT-PCR, for COVID-19, as well as signs, symptoms, imaging, and other laboratory tests.
0: Corey, what's the clinical question we're going to try to answer? What is the diagnostic accuracy of history,
1: clinical examination, routine labs, RT-PCR, immunology tests, and imaging tests for the emergency department diagnosis of COVID-19?
0: And the reference?
1: Carpenter et al., diagnosing COVID-19 in the emergency department. A scoping review of clinical exam, labs, imaging accuracy, and biases. Academic emergency medicine, August 2020.
0: Oh, yes, it is. (sighs) Hot off the press, people. Let's go through the PICO. What was the population?
1: The review is made up of original research studies describing the frequency of history, physical findings, or diagnostic accuracy of history and physical findings, lab tests, or imaging tests for COVID-19.
0: And there was no intervention or comparison, but what we were looking at is the outcome. So what was the outcome?
1: Diagnostic accuracy, including sensitivity, specificity, and likelihood ratios.
0: Well, this is an SGM Hot Off the Press episode, which means we have the lead author on the show. Dr. Chris Carpenter is a professor of emergency medicine at Washington University in St. Louis and a member of the Emergency Medicine Research Corps. He's a member of the SAEM Board of Directors and the former chair of the SAEM EBM Interest Group and ASEP Geriatric Section. He's the deputy editor in chief of AEM where he is leading the development of the Guidelines for Reasonable and Appropriate Emergency Care Project, or GRACE. He's also the Associate Editor of Annals of Internal Medicine ACP Journal Club and the Journal of the American Geriatric Society, and he serves on the American College of Emergency Physicians Clinical Policy Committee. Chris is also my best friend. Welcome back to the SGM.
2: Ken, it's always a pleasure to be on the SGEM, and it took a pandemic for us to realize
0: how lucky we are to get together every year at SAM
2: and ASAP, right?
0: Listeners may not know, but we bunk together. So every Canadian meeting and every American meeting, we always do this reciprocal thing where we get a room together and hang out at the conference together. And it's it's something that I look forward to every year.
2: Yeah, me too. Two beds, though.
0: Yeah. Oh, yeah. Two beds. Yep. (laughs) Chris is an expert in geriatric EM, and he literally wrote the book on diagnostic testing and clinical decision rules.
2: Yeah, we've got the third edition of that textbook coming out. Uh, It's actually due December 2020, so look for it soon.
1: Well, before we get into this latest paper, what is your overall impression of COVID-19 diagnostic testing in the U.S. in general? Do we have enough tests? Are they accurate, timely, et cetera?
2: Yeah, we've had persistent uh, intermittent uh, inavailability of testing in the St. Louis area, and I know that's been a national problem. A, a bigger concern to me, and the reason that we were motivated to do this scoping review, was because the, the science of the diagnostic testing just was not there, that there are so many flaws in the research and potential biases that before we even can get to the stage of, of, of local planning and figuring out which interventions work or not, we really have to understand the diagnostic science.
0: Well, with COVID-19, we've seen a lot of research come out and it's lacked some quality at times. And there's been preprints and press releases. And what we really need is high quality information to guide and direct our care. So I'm glad you've done this project. Can you read the conclusions from your paper?
2: Sure thing, Ken. With the exception of fever and disorders of smell or taste, History and physical exam findings are unhelpful to distinguish COVID-19 from other infectious conditions that mimic SARS-CoV-2, like influenza. Routine labs are also non-diagnostic, although lymphopenia is a common finding, and other abnormalities may predict severe disease. Although reverse transcriptase PCR, which I'll just call PCR from now on, is the current criterion standard, more inclusive consensus-based criteria will likely emerge because of the high false-negative rates of PCR tests. The role of serology and CT and ED assessments remains undefined.
0: All right, Corey, let's go through the quality checklist for systematic reviews of diagnostic studies, and there's six questions. The first question, Corey, is the diagnostic question is clinically relevant with an established criterion standard.
1: Yes, Ken, the question is absolutely clinically relevant, especially right now, but there is not an established criterion standard.
0: Was the search for studies detailed and exhaustive? I'm going to have to go with no on this one, Ken. The methodological quality of the primary studies were assessed for common forms of diagnostic research bias. Yes. The assessment of studies was reproducible? Yes. There was low heterogeneity for the estimate of sensitivity or specificity. No. And the final question, the summary diagnostic accuracy, is sufficiently precise to improve upon existing clinical decision-making models? Unfortunately not. All right, let's go through the key results. The authors screened just over 1,900 citations, and 87 were included in the review. None adhere to the Standards for Reporting of Diagnostic Accuracy, or STARD, or updated reporting framework for history and physical examination. PCR was used as the criterion standard for many of the studies, but none explored the possibility of false negatives. Let's break down some of these key results. Corey, what was the most frequent clinical finding?
1: The most frequent clinical finding for COVID-19 was fever. About 84 to 87% of patients report this.
0: Now we've heard a lot about people having difficulty with smell and taste. What numbers can you give us for these symptoms?
1: For smell, the likelihood ratio was 5.3 with a negative LR of 0.61. For taste, the positive LR was 7.1 and a negative LR of
0: 0.38. What about the diagnostic accuracy of PCR? Which was the reference criterion? One
1: test had about a 60 to 78% sensitivity, meaning true positives. Two tests, 86%, and if you had five tests done, about 98% sensitivity.
0: And what about the serologic testing we're hearing about, IgM and IgG?
1: That showed a sensitivity of 82 to 100% and specificity of 87 to 100%, Ken.
0: And finally, what about the imaging tests, chest x rays and CT scans? Chest x ray had a sensitivity
1: of about 33 to 60%, and a CT scan about 72 to 94%, and specificity 24 to
0: Corey, what I'll do is put a table in the show notes to summarize these findings, but I really want to get into the talk nerdy section because I love talking nerdy with Chris Carpenter. So, BFF, how many questions do you think we're going to ask you? Uh, five. Oh, you know me so well. All right, let's go through those five questions. Question number one, Chris, Prisma Scoping Review gemmers who listen to this show are familiar with PRISMA, the preferred reporting items for systematic reviews and meta-analyses, guidelines. What are the differences between PRISMA and PRISMA scoping review?
2: It's a good question, Ken. PRISMA provides a reproducible reporting framework for systematic reviews and meta-analysis authors. You know that every meta-analysis is a systematic review, but not every systematic review is a meta-analysis. Multiple PRISMA extensions now exist. There's one for acupuncture, one for harms of diagnostic testing, one for health equity, another for network meta-analyses, and there are several others. In 2018, PRISMA published scoping review reporting methods. A scoping review differs from a systematic review in that formal quality assessment of individual diagnostic studies using a tool like QADIS-2 is not performed. PRISMA scoping review still requires a reproducible search strategy a synthesis of research findings. And and we selected a scoping review rather than a systematic review because we had limited time to find and synthesize the studies amidst our own COVID crisis at our institution. Yet we wanted to draw a line in the sand for diagnostic accuracy quality reporting because we were seeing the same research biases occurring repeatedly in these diagnostic studies.
1: Okay, so question number two. And I think you partially answered this in in the discussion of scoping reviews. But why did you decide to exclude non-English language studies? Would there not be a benefit to the experience out of other countries, in particular China, even if not published in English language journals?
2: Yeah, that's definitely a flaw, particularly since COVID started in China. And that's where some of the original research came from because they were exposed to it first. This decision was simply for expediency because we lacked the time to find or to fund translators uh, for, for Asian languages. You'll see from the articles that we include the majority were from China uh, because this was early May with little experience or research published from Europe or the U.S. at that time. And as described in our PRISMA diagram, figure two, we did not include any st- exclude any studies for the purposes of language. That probably reflects a bias of our search engines, which were PubMed and Embase, for Asian language journals and that those are often excluded as well as the fact that English is increasingly the universal language for scientific reporting.
1: So, yeah, so it sounds like you're fairly confident that even though you excluded non-English language, you captured a
0: broad enough set of data.
2: I, I think so. As I said, most of the articles that we did include were indeed from China.
0: All right, question number three is about STARD, And Chris, you know that I think you're a star, but tell us about the standards for reporting of diagnostic accuracy or the starred guidelines. None of the included studies adhered to the STARD guidelines. Why are these guidelines so important to follow?
2: Well, Ken, you and Corey are the stars here, but, but I'll answer your question. Uh, <laughs> over two decades ago, journal editors and publishers convened to create mutually acceptable reporting standards that would transcend specialties, cardiology, gastroenterology, surgery, emergency medicine, and they began with the CONSORT criteria for randomized control trials. These reporting standards continue to multiply. There's over 400 now, and they're warehoused on the Equator website, and we'll have a link to that in the show notes. Like Prisma for systematic reviews, STARD is the Equator Network reporting standard for diagnostic studies. Unfortunately, as demonstrated in our COVID 19 scoping review, uptake of these reporting standards has been slow in emergency medicine. In fact, in t- 2017, Galloway et al., part of the BEAM team and legend of emergency medicine, Andrew Wooster, reported on behalf th- of the BEAM team that about 80% of a randomly selected uh, portion of diagnostic studies from 8EM journals report about half of starred criteria. Some elements of starred that were commonly omitted that is not included were reporting the time interval between the index test and the criterion standard, the reproducibility of the index test, the harms associated with the test, two by two contingency tables so that you can compute sensitivity and specificity and likelihood ratios, and the test performance variability across clinicians labs, or test interpreters, or patient populations. So the equator network reporting standards like STARD are imperfect, but they provide a minimal basement quality standard to ensure that diagnostic investigators evaluate and report essential features of their research design, and that journal reviewers and editors consider the analysis of those elements in the study.
0: So if you want to be a STARD in producing diagnostic research studies, you better follow the STARD criteria. Well said.
1: Okay, now let's talk about diagnostic biases. A core paper that resident clinicians should be- 80%. on various diagnostic biases by Khan et al. Khan! You are one of the co-authors on that paper. And is that how you speak to him every time, every time he calls you Khan? (laughs) Yeah, it it definitely is the way I talk to him, yep. (laughs) (laughs) So let's go through some of the common diagnostic biases and how they can impact results. So first off is spectrum bias. Sensitivity depends on the spectrum of disease, while specificity depends on the spectrum of non-disease. So you can falsely raise sensitivity if the clinical practice has lots of very sick people. Specificity can look great if you have no sick patients in the cohort, the worried well. How would spectrum bias impact COVID-19 testing?
2: Yeah, some people call spectrum bias spectrum effect because it's not so much a bias as an effect of the population you study. But either way, it's the same concept. Uh, To answer your question, it's difficult to ascertain using the data that was provided in the research reporting of the early COVID-19 era. Investigators rarely reported the distribution of disease severity, for example, the percentage of the patients that were admitted to an ICU or Apache 2 scores, nor did they report baseline risk profiles like the frailty score for older adults or comorbid illness scores in the COVID-19 positive patients, nor did they report the distribution of alternative diagnoses in COVID-19 negative patients like influenza or other viral pneumonias. So it's really hard because they didn't give us the tools we need to figure out what the spectrum of illness was. WashU is participating in a study that includes 50 emergency departments across the United States to derive a perk like rule that identifies patients at low risk of COVID-19 that might be useful when testing is delayed or unavailable. With the variability in COVID-19 prevalence compounded by fluctuating availability of criterion-standard testing resources, PCR, We have noted a skew towards testing very low risk or no risk patients in our study of these 15 centers, which will skew specificity upwards and leave sensitivity relatively unaffected for any measure of diagnostic tests that we do, history, physical exam, imaging. Future COVID-19 diagnostic investigators, whether evaluating history, physical exam labs or imaging or decision aids, need to report sufficient detail to permit uh, stratification of accuracy estimates by disease severity in order to understand this impact of spectrum bias.
0: All right, let's move on to another bias. How about incorporation bias? This occurs when the test under study are actually used to make the final diagnosis. This makes the test appear more powerful by falsely raising the sensitivity and the specificity.
2: Incorporation bias is particularly prevalent when the index test is part of the composite group of findings that determine whether the disease is present or absent, in other words, part of the gold standard. In the case of COVID-19, viral cultures would probably be the ideal gold standard, but they weren't commonly available or evaluated uh, or reported in, as a comparative criterion standard in the research that we found and synthesized. In fact, we did not find any recommendations for a preferable criterion standard by authors, commentators, or even going to governmental websites like the CDC. So in our manuscript, we proposed one that includes a downstream evaluation of exposure history, symptoms at the time of testing, laboratory tests, including PCR imaging, serology, and viral cultures as an optimal criterion standard for COVID-19. seems very logical. We found it really hard to believe nobody had done that previously. Of course, our recommended criterion standard would also be at risk for incorporation bias when evaluating history, physical exam, labs, imaging, or PCR, but seems to have a bit more face validity than using PCR as a criterion standard for PCR. incorporation bias, the criterion standard, when it incorporates the index test, the index test can never be wrong, right?
0: It just becomes a feedback loop. If the way you get the diagnosis is having a positive PCR, then you have the diagnosis, and the diagnosis is dependent on the PCR, and it just goes round and round and round. And that's why it's called incorporation bias, because the test itself is incorporated in making the diagnosis.
2: So we'll include our proposed criterion standard in the show notes.
1: All right, let's talk about double verification bias or double gold standard. This occurs when the test results influence the choice of the reference standard. So, a positive index test gets an immediate gold standard test, where the patients with a negative index test get clinical follow-up. This can raise or lower sensitivity and specificity as well.
2: And this is likely to occur in COVID nineteen when the results of one test, say a CT demonstrating a typical viral pneumonia finding, it, it is more likely to prompt clinicians or researchers to obtain additional COVID nineteen testing, like a repeat PCR test or a more invasive test like bronchial, alveolar, lavage specimens for COVID-19 testing. Differential verification bias is associated with increased specificity and to a lesser extent sensitivity for diseases that resolve spontaneously. We know that COVID-19 in some populations, like young people, is most likely to resolve spontaneously. On the other hand, for diseases that only become detectable during follow-up, like older adults with COVID-19, like repeat PCR testing or serology testing as well, the observed specificity and sensitivity are decreased. So it can have variable effects on sensitivity and specificity.
0: Speaking of gold standards, this leads into the next bias. And this is the imperfect criterion standard or a copper standard bias. And this is what happens if the quote unquote gold standard is not as good of a test. False positives and false negatives can really mess up the results.
2: Yeah. And the effect on sensitivity and specificity here are a little more complex. If errors on the index and the criterion standard are correlated, in other words, they're usually incorrect at the same time or they're usually correct at the same time, the observed sensitivity and specificity are falsely increased compared with what we would observe in the real world. On the other hand, if errors on the index and criterion standard do not correlate, in other words, they're independent of one another, observed sensitivity and specificity are lower than they would be observed in the real world. Since a gold standard for COVID-19 does not yet exist, we propose one as a starting point, which we showed in table two.
0: Well, I think that's enough of biases. Let's move on to the fifth item, Corey. All
1: right. So the fifth item, false negatives and false positives. What are the implications of false negatives?
2: Yeah, I think this gets at the so what element of this research for the SGM readers and listeners from a patient perspective false negative test. I don't have COVID-19. I don't need a face mask. I don't need to social isolate. It's time to party like it's 1999, right? From a hospital perspective, this individual does does not have COVID-19. So we can put them in a hospital room with another person who does not have COVID-19. Also from a nurse physician perspective in the hospital, I don't need to give them personal protective equipment with this patient. They're negative. So in in figure three in our manuscript, which we'll put in the show notes, we also demonstrated the association between baseline COVID-19 prevalence in the community and false positive or false negative results for three antibody tests that were available at the time that we went to press. So one approach to reduce false negative rates due to imperfect or unavailable PCR testing was to evaluate every patient with PCR and a CT scan. That that was an approach that they took in China early on because they didn't have a lot of PCR tests and they had lots of CT scanners. However, CT is also an imperfect COVID-19 diagnostic test and has additional negative consequences. The first unwanted consequence of CT is the cost to the patient and society and the medical radiation exposure to the patient. A second consequence is potential contamination of CT technicians or subsequent patients in the scanner. There are recommendations to deep clean the scanner for an hour after every COVID-19 patient comes through the CT scanner, but this delays access to CT scanners for every patient in the ED. In a busy trauma center, we have lots of patients coming in with with penetrating trauma that need a CT scan, blunt trauma. We have PE patients that need a CT scan, et cetera. Consequently, the British Society of Thoracic Imaging uh, issued guidelines, which we reference in our paper, that suspected COVID-19 patients should only get a CT scan when you're looking for a complication or another diagnosis, like PE. If you're looking for PE, that's the reason to get the CT scan, not to look for COVID-19.
0: Well, that talks a lot about the false negative implications. What about the implications of false positives?
2: Well, false positives for PCR are likely uncommon if the labs follow CDC testing the recommendations. Specificities are, are probably 95 to 100 uh, percent. On the other hand, false positives for antibody testing are largely unknown and, and rarely contemplated in the early papers. We provided an algebraic manipulation, of the Bayes theorem, which I thought you'd like, Ken, that provides a threshold COVID-19 prevalence at which the likelihood of a true positive is equal to a false positive. In other words, a, a point the disease prevalence in the community where a positive test is equally likely to be false positive or true positive. Using this equation and the results reported from one serology test, we estimate a threshold of 0.62%, 0.62% prevalence. But using the results from another study of, of a, a serology test, that threshold is about 10%. In other words, if regional prevalence is less than 10%, then a positive test is more likely to be a false positive than to be a true positive. The implications of a false positive test could include unnecessary isolation of individuals, including restriction from work and lost income, which in some folks might increase health disparities and increase their risk for COVID-19, actually, and the expense of additional testing that they just can't afford. We also provide clinicians with a resource to help patients and families to understand the imperfections of PCR testing in a case plot. This case plot you could print out and, and hand out to patients with their PCR test results so that they can understand what the implications of the PCR result are in terms of true positives, false positives, true negatives, and false negatives.
0: Well, those are the five nerdy questions we had for you, Chris. But I think Corey has one more question that's sort of a bigger picture question, a, a sort of take a step back.
1: Yeah. So, Chris, what do you think the implications are for future research in the diagnostic accuracy of COVID-19?
2: We we did talk about some of these in the paper, uh, and we came up with five of them, Ken, so I thought you'd like that. I wanted to do 10, but I went with five. I did notice that, so thank you very much. So, so number one, diagnostic investigators must adhere to starred reporting standards. The risk of not doing that are the clinicians and policymakers risk devolving into a confusing tower of Babel with rampant miscommunication and preventable repetition of research error. That's already occurred in dozens of papers already. Number two, Journal editors and reviewers should hold researchers to starred standards by seeking additional data or clarifications when elements of diagnostic testing, such as accuracy among patient subsets, explicitly reporting two-by-two two contingency tables, and inter-rater reliability of the results of whatever the test is that they're assessing. These are all missing from most of the papers we looked at. Number three. Contemplate the harms of testing, including quantification of false negatives and false positives, and the associated adverse consequences for patients, hospitals, and communities of those false test results. Number four, consider reporting interval likelihood ratios for continuous data. We we didn't really get off on that tangent, but continuous data points, like most lab tests we have, aren't positive or negative. They are something zero to infinity. And beyond! And we falsely dichotomize them when we report sensitivity and specificity We can probably get a lot more diagnostic information out of them if we report them as interval likelihood ratios. None of the studies have done that yet. And number five, beyond the elementary case plots that we propose, really develop formal shared decision-making resources for patients and families to aid meaningful discussions around the interpretation of signs, symptoms, imaging labs, and PCR test results. COVID's not going away anytime soon, so there's gonna be time to develop these shared decision-making instruments.
0: Corey, time to comment on the author's conclusions and compare them to the SGEM's conclusions. Can we agree with the author's conclusions. How about an SGEM bottom line, then? The
1: limitations for diagnostic testing for COVID-19 must be understood. Current PCR tests have a fairly high false negative rate, so serial testing should be performed. There may be a role for imaging in suspected patients, but there are no pathognomonic findings for COVID-19.
0: And how about resolving the case you presented at the start of the podcast? So your patient tests negative for the
1: virus. Despite this, your suspicion is high, so you continue to use appropriate PPE when entering the room.
0: And how are you going to take this scoping review and apply it clinically?
1: Ken, we've got to be aware of high false negative rates for PCR testing and maintain a high level of suspicion in high-risk patients.
0: And what are you going to tell the patient at the bedside?
1: I'm going to tell them that their initial COVID test came back negative. However, given the suspicion that we have, we're going to continue to protect ourselves, staff, and other patients, and are going to care for you as if you have the virus, along with repeating testing to confirm the positivity or negativity.
0: So it's time to announce last week's Keener Contest winner, and that was Claudia Martin, a respiratory therapist Long-time listener to the SGM and multiple keener contest winner. She knew agophony comes from the Greek word meaning bleeding of a goat. <laughs> Corey, what's the question this week?
1: What are the medical terms used for decreased smell and taste?
0: Ah, uh, yes, we mentioned that in the podcast. So if you know what the medical terms used for decreased in smell and taste, then send an email to the sgem at gmail.com with Keener in the subject line. The first correct answer will receive a cool skeptical prize.
1: Now it's your turn, S-Gemmers. What do you think of this episode on the diagnostic accuracy of history, physical, lab, and imaging for COVID 19? Tweet your comments using the hashtag SGEMHOP. What questions do you have for Chris and his team? Ask them on the SGEM blog. The best social media feedback will be published in Academic Emergency Medicine.
0: All right. Well, thanks, Corey, for coming on and doing the last regular episode of season number eight. You're welcome, Ken. Always a pleasure. And thanks, Chris, for coming back on the sgem and talking about your latest hot off the press research. I look forward to when this whole physical distancing thing is over. Again, I'm going to emphasize that it's physical distancing because we're not in direct contact, but it doesn't mean social distancing. We still need to stay We still need to stay connected socially like we're doing right now through virtual, like we're doing right now virtually. We still need that social connection. It may be even more important now during COVID-19, but when this physical distancing is over, I'm challenging you to another round of Galaga.
2: (laughs) You're on, Ken. I'm going to start practicing right now. Thank you, Corey and Ken, for covering this paper. My co-authors and I, our hope is to improve the science of diagnostic testing for COVID-19. But in a bigger picture, let's make sure that as we hoe this road ahead, these difficult challenges that are coming with the second and maybe third, fourth wave of COVID-19, that we look out for each other and make sure that we're looking out for the humanism of medicine and collegiality with our colleagues. Because there will be an end to this. All bleeding stops eventually.
0: Yeah, we need to take care of each other. And this too shall pass. All right, Chris, now I'm going to ask you to do one final task, and that is to read the SGM tagline.
2: Yeah, I'll do my best combined Michigan St. Louis accent. Remember to be skeptical of anything you learn, even if you heard on the Skeptic's Guide to Marincy Madison. You understand?
0: It was almost like I was at the Lake of the Ozark. Hello!